Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer Andre Dubis III, author of seven books, including New York Times bestselling novels, House of Sand and Fog, and The Garden of Last Days, the memoir Townie, and most recently, the collection of novellas, Dirty Love. Dubis has been a finalist for the National Book Award and has been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, two Pushcart Prizes, and the 2012 American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. Debuse is a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. His forthcoming novel, Gone So Long, will be published in October 2018. Debuse gave a reading at the U of O on May 10th, 2018, as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Andre, for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. So you've described the context of your youth as living in first world poverty. Yeah. Tell us about your background. Well, like a lot of people, I grew up in a divorced family. My parents were kind of financially strapped before they broke up. And if anybody knows that life, and too many do, divorce will lead to even greater poverty. So my mother was a single mom, raised four kids pretty much by herself. My father was not a deadbeat dad. He paid his child support and did what he could. Um, but I, you know, I grew up with a mother I, watching a woman choose between paying the electric bill or being on time with the rent or buying groceries or putting gas in the car for work, et cetera. And you know, it, it's really shaped my view of, of the world uh, in a lot of ways, I think. As a young man, you were on a like, there was a patch in your youth when you were on a violent and self-destructive path. Yeah. It was um, a long patch. It was more of a field. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you change the course of your life? What, what led you to... Well, real quickly, I'll, I'll try to compress. I, I, I was a small kid. I was a bookish kid. Uh, you know, I would use adverbs in daily speech kind of kid. And, and we lived in tough neighborhoods, and they got tougher. And, we, you know, we would move two to three times a year for cheaper rent. I got beat up a lot, and, and one day I snapped at 14 and, and vowed never to get victimized again. I started to lift weights, I started to box, I discovered I had boxing talent, and I kind of went on a rampage for about a decade, um, victimizing victimizers. It almost sounds tragicomic. You could have put a mask on me and a cape, but <laughs> I especially hated violence towards women by men. I hated uh, bullies, cruelty, and I, and so I would exact extreme violence. I got arrested a bunch of times. I mean, my local police love me because I'm wailing on guys who they wanted to, but couldn't without losing their badges. Um, and, and I got a lot of social rewards. And, and I, you know, part of me is still proud that I changed myself from being a victim to a non-victim, but I was on a really dark path because it was a violent one. And I hate violence, I, I really do. But, and that little voice we all have said, look, man, you're going to get killed doing this. Or you're going to go to prison. So I started to box as a way to get peaceful. <laughs> I said, well, I'll just be a pugilist in the ring. I'll stop boxing. I know I'm not afraid of fighting anymore. I mean, I'll stop fighting. And one night, uh, to this day, Paul, it makes me believe in the divine. I have a hard time believing in a God, but not in the divine. And something made me sit down in, in my little apartment and start writing a scene. And to this day, I don't know what made me do that. But, you know, when I finished, I felt more like me than I ever had. And I still got into fights for a few years, mainly defending people. I had to, I had to be able to morally defend the violence. So I would wait till I saw something horrible. Like, on the last fight I was in, a man was beating up his wife with his fists in front of my house. And um, uh, it sounds almost uh, too simple, but the truth is finding another way to express myself uh, and then starting to write character-driven fiction where you inherently as a writer have to ask what's it like to be you dear stranger in my dream world it became very hard for me to 
punched people in the face later that day. I, and I realized that I was looking at people in black and white kind of fundamentalist ways. Well, you know, you, you do something bad, you're bad, you should be punished. Uh, I stopped looking at behavior. I, I still look at behavior as bad, but I, I began to not judge people as much. And I, and I think it's very, I talk about this in my classes, I think that if you're going to write fiction, you better not judge these people. They won't show up because who's not flawed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that got me off the path. <laughs> so you've spent most of your career as a fiction writer, mm -hmm. but in 2011 you published your memoir, Townie. Yeah. Yeah. So, what led you to write that? Where did you get the idea that you were going to write a memoir? Now? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of the story of how that memoir came is emblematic of, of my and a lot of writers I know process. And that is, I truly believe the writing is larger than the writer. I was writing an essay about my sons in baseball. We got two sons and a daughter in the middle. And, and my sons played baseball growing up. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't play any games. I, didn't, I still didn't know how to play. And right about when they were eight or nine, I saw how competitive they got with the coaches. So I volunteered to coach to protect my sons, except I forgot I'd never played baseball <laughs> and didn't know how. I'm 41 years old and I'm learning the first two fouls or strikes. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you couldn't, you didn't have to slide into first base. I learned all this stuff. I thought, I'm going to write a funny essay. <laughs> And, and it, the essay was really about, it was my sons who brought me to baseball, not my father, because they didn't live with us. And 500 pages, and two and a half years later, I wrote what I was doing instead of playing baseball. And, and that's how Townie came from, a, from a, an essay that, you know. So, I mean, I would say 95% of whatever I've put in the world in writing uh, have been the phoenixes that rose from the ashes of what failed or from the ashes of what I wanted to do. And that's where the joy is when it <laughs> takes off on its own. You called it an you called it an accidental memoir. It's an accidental memoir. I had no intention. And I had only read one at that point. It, it was a great one, thank God. It was <laughs> Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life. I'd read ten years earlier, but now I've read a lot of memoirs, and now <laughs> I think it's a pretty good form. Yeah. I mean, who knew? <laughs> um, uh, you share your name and profession with your father, and you've alluded to yeah. him a couple of times. I know that. Um, you certainly weren't thinking when you sat down that night and wrote that first story that you were going to follow in your father's footsteps. No. But in retrospect, do you think that there's th that that had any role? The fact that he was a writer had any role in your choice of career? Well, I, I would say it's it's genetic more than anything. I mean, I've got I, I think at least two of my three kids are writers, oh, and um, my father's first cousin is the crime writer James Lee Burke, and his daughter Alifair is a a writer and a novelist and my cousin Delaney, it's kind of in the water. There are like seven of us in my <laughs> larger clan on my dad's side. And so I do think there might be something genetic goes on, like maybe the Wyeths in painting and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the box in music. It's one of those Wyeths is in one of your stories. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite Wyeth. But I will say this, you know, for years I, I really rejected any comparisons to my dad because number one, he's, he's such a beautiful writer and who wants that comparison? But Honestly, I felt really defensive because I was raised by my single mother. And, you know, don't, you know, what my father have to do anything? A except here's where I was full of it, and Paul. I got to watch, when my dad lived with us up until I was about nine years old, I would watch a grown man go into a room, shut the door, and we all had to be quiet because daddy was writing. And, and years later, when I'd be in my, in my mid-20s, when I began to write myself, and I worked a bunch of, you know, jobs I didn't want forever, like bartending and house cleaning, et cetera. You know, I, I had this, this psychic uh, example of a way to live an adult life that was honorable. And I've met so many adults over the years, especially at writing conferences, who never had that as a role model. And, and they didn't start writing until their parents were dead because their parents would be upset if they went down an artistic path. 
So my father was a profound influence just in that imagistic way of watching a man go into a room, shut it, shut the door, and try to write something beautiful for a stranger. And that went, that went deep, deeper than I, than I was aware. Um, you mentioned uh, in passing before uh, about the importance of character-driven fiction, mm. and your fiction is clearly character-driven, and you, 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 know, you, you said some very wise things about needing to think about things from the other guy's point of view. I, I'm thinking of Atticus Finch saying to Scout, you know, you've got to walk around in the other guy's shoes. Yeah. Um, your most recent book of uh, novellas, Dirty Love, um, utterly character-driven fiction yeah. and, and filled with characters who are complicated, not black and white people. Thank God. <laughs> so could I ask you to read a little bit from yeah. Dirty Love? Yeah, I'll read from uh, this novella, Marla. Um, she's uh, sadly not too all unusual young woman who has somehow missed the love train. And then she, she meets a man, and, and here we go. They move in a little too soon. At home is one week pushed into another. Little things about Dennis began to bother Marla. The sometimes nasal way he'd call her Marl. How at breakfast every morning he'd skip the newspaper headlines and do the crossword puzzle instead. How he cleaned up so often the place never looked lived in. Even their lovemaking needed something. It always seemed to stop just as things began to gather all warm and rising for her. And she didn't like how he always took a shower after. It made her feel dirty and like what they'd done was slightly wrong somehow. He stopped wanting to go anywhere except on weekends, preferred instead to watch TV or go to his computer room and play games where the viewer entered a cyber world armed with a shotgun, machete, and hand grenades. He taught her how to play it too, but sitting in that dark room staring at the simulated colors of bad muscular men bleeding to death from just the click of the mouse on Dennis's desk, from the electronic blast of the shotgun or the swipe of the machete blade, Marla felt the same bruised emptiness that she did after an action movie, and she'd kiss Dennis on the forehead and leave the room while he kept playing. There was something else too, and she hated herself for this, but it was his weight. Watching him walk naked into or out of the bathroom, she often looked away, not out of respect for his privacy, but because she honestly did not like to see the way his hairy chest pushed out to the side like a woman's, how his belly hung almost to his penis, penis which looked somehow boyish and outmatched in the great mass of all that flesh and hair. At first, she thought this reflected his size and strength, his very manliness. But that's when she'd allowed herself to think he'd been a wrestler or weightlifter in college, maybe even a football player, not the sedentary man she now knew him to be and to always have been. He told her that he spent his childhood in his room, reading and drawing robots and guns and galactic cities floating in fiery orbits, that college was one long period of book after book and a lot of hamburgers, pizza, and fries. She found herself judging him for this especially at night after dinner, dessert too, when he'd bring a box of crackers and a jar of peanut butter to the living room with him, or a second helping of dessert, or a hunk of cheese and bowl of nuts. One night in late November, a couple of days after a Thanksgiving they'd spent at a restaurant, she had a cold and sat on the couch wrapped in a blanket, holding a hot cup of lemon tea. She glanced at the peanut butter crackers on his plate and said, are you really hungry? He just sat down. He looked over at her, his cheeks flushed, obviously. Marla didn't know if he was angry or embarrassed, and she felt mean-spirited and small. 
For a long minute or two, there was nothing but the sounds of the TV, the forced laughter of the studio audience, slender actors with good skin and shiny hair looking naturally appealing. You shouldn't talk, you know. Dennis bit off half a cracker and chewed. What? You know what I mean. Marla's face burned. It was as if he just overturned the couch and she was falling to the floor. You're talking about my weight? Dennis swallowed and bit into another cracker, his eyes on the television. There were crumbs in his beard and she hated him for it and they began to blur and she jumped off the couch and rushed upstairs to their room, his room really his bed and his bureau and bedside table. On the walls were framed his degrees and another boring graphic. On the bureau were his wallet and keys. Where was her room? She curled up on the bed and cried. She could hear the jingle of a commercial downstairs and she wondered how long he'd stay down there without coming up to her dress, what had just happened between them. And what did happen? She was mean and then so was he. But it was more than just that. Marla couldn't help but notice that part of her was relieved to see another ugly side of him. The TV noise stopped and she heard the creak of the carpeted stairs, then the sinking of the bed, the smell of peanut butter and his perfumey cologne. Marl? Yeah? She sniffled, dabbed at her nose with two fingers. You think I'm too heavy? Do you think I am? No. Then why'd you say what you said? To get back at you, I guess. Marla sat up and blew her nose. He rested his hand on her thigh and she knew they were on their way to patching this up, but something had opened between them and she wasn't sure she wanted it closed. She looked straight ahead at the dark window. I've always been fat, you know. Me too. Marla wiped her nose. But I bet you had girlfriends. Two or three, nobody special. Well, I didn't. Marla kept her eyes on the black glass of the window, the reflection of a lampshade in it. You're my first boyfriend. I am? Yes. Oh. He nodded his head slightly. She wished she hadn't told him, but was also glad she did, as if this were some kind of test they could not avoid, though she did not know who was testing whom. Are you surprised? No. I mean, yeah, of course I am. What's that have to do with anything? Marla shrugged. I'm not the best catch in the world, Dennis. Marla, no, really, I'm not pretty. All I know how to do is count other people's money. I sh stop that, Marla, you shouldn't say that. His voice was gentle but distant, too, like he was already beginning to believe what she was saying and didn't want to. He pulled his hand from her thigh and stared at the floor again. You should never say that about yourself. They sat quietly for a moment. Then he stood and took a long, tired breath. Want me to bring your tea up? She shook her head and listened to him walk heavily out of the room and down the stairs. Thanks so much. Thank you. So the title of the volume is the title of the last of the four novellas, mm. but it's also the title of the volume. Will you say something about the title as a title for the book? Yeah, Dirty Love comes from the, um, as you say, the, the title novella, which is the longest in the book maybe 130 pages, and it's told from two points of view. One, a 17-year-old, 17, right? 17-year-old girl uh, named Devon living with her great-uncle Francis. He's in his 80s, a widower, and um, she's had a tough time uh, with an online sex act uh, that has, you know, shamed her. 
from someone's phone and she's kind of in hiding with her great uncle and and they love each other very much and it's 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 kind of a sweet relationship and I'm so glad they showed up in my dream world <laughs> but the title comes from a moment uh, a line from one of Devin's thoughts where she's thinking about the blood of family being dirty with love like the blood of family is dirty with love and and I remember you know when you're writing you'll You'll, you'll stumble across a fragment that has resonance. So I wrote down Dirty With Love and, uh, as a possible title, and, and then I just cut with. And I thought it was utterly original, Paul, <laughs> until someone reminded me it's a Frank Zappa song. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought it was mine. Thank God there's no copyright on title. <laughs> um, say a little bit more about the relevance of your understanding of the word for all the stories in the volume. Why is it a good title for them? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's a good question. And, and, I should pull back on it a little bit. You know, um, one of the many things I find myself trying to impart in my own creative writing classes is I think it's important to write from the inside out and not the outside in. Um, there's a great line from the writer Richard Bausch. He says, look, if you think that you're thinking when you're writing, think again. You're much closer to the dreaming side of your mind, so dream, dream, dream it through. So what I find, though, is if I, if I work from the inside out, just try to be these people in their situation and try to write as honestly as I possibly can without judgment and then let the story go where it wants to, apart from what I would like it to do, um, it'll, it'll show its th thematic resonances more organically on, on, in a, on their own. So when I finish all four of these, which is over the course of many years, um, Man, everybody's screwing up. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, my God, I, I, yeah, there's infidelity, there's uh, alcoholism, there's lying and cheating and stealing. And, and yet at the heart of them all, I, I think, it is, a, is a pretty normal human yearning to do right every day and love and be loved. And so uh, dirty love for me uh, thematically just kind of encapsulates how hard it is for all of us to do it to do it well. Yeah, it's, it's such a great description of, of uh, what the message of the whole volume is. Thank you. Um, as we've said, it's it's a it's four novellas, mm -hmm. and you've written short stories, you've written novels, you've written a memoir. Tell us what's special about the the genre of the novella. What's I love the novella form, and um, I, I've read a lot of novellas. One of my favorite practitioners of that form is Jim Harrison. I don't know if you read Harrison mm -hmm. from Michigan we just lost. He published many, many volumes. The first one I read was Legends of the Fall, and I was struck by by the length. I mean, I think publishers will call, you know, call it a uh, novella if it's between 75 and 125 pages. Lots of times you'll see, see them put out a book they call a novel. It's clearly a novella. Mm -hmm. What I love about it is it's, it's um, it's, it's something you can, can read in one sitting after dinner, you know, back in the days where people would sit in a chair without a gadget and read a book <laughs> and uninterrupted for you, two hours and you get a whole experience. And, you know, oftentimes a short story isn't quite long enough to do it all. And a novel can sometimes go on and on a little bit too long. <laughs> so I really love the novella form. My, I have to say my father was also really good at that, at that form. My father, the late short story writer, Andre DeBuse. Um, Tolstoy. I mean, one of my favorite <laughs> Tolstoys is the Cossacks. You know, it's a great form. Oh yeah. But I wasn't. I wasn't trying. I should tell you one more thing. Yeah. Um, three of those came from a failed novel. Um, they were 300 pages, and I boiled them down to 50, 60, 70, which is so painful. But hey, look, it turned out really well. Well, <laughs> thank you. So one of the things that's really cool about this particular collection of novellas is that 
um, their characters in them up appear as minor, major characters in one story appear as minor characters in another. Mm. Say a little bit about that, why? why? Well, by the way, it happened strangely organically on its own. Um, the first one that I wrote in that book is The Bartender, and that came from a failed novel, a 250-page manuscript, uh, and I thought, okay, all this stuff needs to go, the only thing worth anything are these 50, 60 pages. And then years later um, came Marla, and then came, you know, listen carefully as our options have changed, and then Dirty Love. Over the course of maybe, I don't know, 10 or so years, and it was my editor who pointed out, do you realize that they work at the same bank? Yeah. Do you realize that so-and-so oh, wow. walked into the same restaurant? <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> and so then I just, you know, and then I tweaked it to make sure that was very clear to the reader, but it kind of happened on its own. But this sort of underscores my whole belief about this thing, mm -hmm. this whole creative writing thing, that it, you know, when you're writing well, there's a feeling that you're unearthing, that you're excavating something, that you're not contriving something, you're finding something. And so that, yeah, I, it's just so mysterious and strange. <laughs> yeah, that's how that came about. So the thing you've just said is it raises this question. You are also a teacher of writing. Right. And you've mentioned a couple of times as we've been speaking some of the things you say to your students, but you've just described something which is sort of mysterious about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm an English prof, and I teach, you know, I, I teach books. I mean, I teach creative writing, I mean, but, I, but I don't teach people how to write. Right. I mean, how to write creatively. Yeah. I teach them how to be critics of yeah. creative writing. Thank you. So, uh, so how do you, what are some of the things you'd say to your students to, to help them access this mysterious thing that you keep talking about so eloquently? Do we have five hours? <laughs> no. I'll, I, I'll, make I'll make it very brief. I'll make it very brief. Well, look, um, because I do think we're dealing with mysteries here, the, the, the central challenge of fine art instruction is demystifying something that's a bit mysterious. Mm -hmm. And again, there's no right or wrong way to do this. There's no correct way to do it. And so then what should be de demystified? I think the writing tools. Mm -hmm. Point of view, psychic distance, you know, present tense versus past tense, uh, you know, the, the five senses, um, the various direct ways to develop character on the page, what do they look like, what do they sound like, what do they think and feel, more importantly, and remember, you know, what do they do? All of these tools can be demystified and should be and taught. And, and yet, so, so my own belief is that every human being gets an imagination. Every kid gets one. And I also, after years of teaching and reading all these manuscripts, I don't think anyone has a better one. That's not to say more interesting stuff doesn't come from some people, but I think that has to do more with how deeply the writer goes into his or her imagination. So for me, the fuel for it all, so, so, so let's say the submarine is, or all these tools, right, that you can, you can teach anybody, and it can be practiced daily for a life. But the fuel has got to be what Faulkner talked about. He was asked late in his life, what's the main thing the writer needs? He says, it ain't talent. He said, I used to think it was talent, but I don't anymore. And he said, it's curiosity. Mm. And his exact phrase was, uh, insight to wonder, to mull and to muse why it is that man does what he does. And if you have that, talent makes no difference whether you've got it or not. So for me, that's what it's all about. And that can be encouraged and taught. You know, so I'll teach someone, say, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe this. I think, I think you made up that moment. You didn't imagine it. So what do you mean? It's fiction. I, I, I made up the whole thing. So you know, there's a difference between throwing something plausible and kind of sexy on the page mm -hmm. and then asking yourself, what, what is she really thinking right now? Yes, I've heard you talk about the yeah. distinction between making it up and imagining. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're getting at. And that's here. what I mean. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we can do a fun parlor game over a ball of wine where you give us the first 
sentence and I give the second and on and on. And we can c come up with maybe a pretty good story. In fact, Hollywood makes movies like that all the time in story conferences. <laughs> yes. But I, I think there's a difference between contriving a clever, sexy, maybe even publishable story and, and mining much deeper than that into your psyche. And I think that's where real art comes from. Mm -hmm. um, you have a new novel forthcoming this fall titled Gone So Long. Can you tell us a little bit about it, or is that oh, top secret Oh, I'll tell you. It's, it's done a number on me, Paul, that damn novel. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. I've ne I don't know if I've ever worked harder on a novel, huh, and, and I don't, I'm not sure why. I think, I can tell you that it's from three points of view. The novel before that was like eight points of view, and, and when I finished that manuscript, it was 14. This one's only three, a man and two women. And it begins primarily from the point of view of a man in his 60s who's dying. He hasn't seen his daughter in 40 years since she was three, and he's going off to find her. Hmm. And, uh, and then we go to her point of view and another characters. And um, it's, a really, it, it's a pretty dark tale because he did something really terrible. They got him into the absence away from his daughter. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's dedicated to my daughter, Ariadne, who's 22. And, and, you know, the writer, I think especially novelists, well, no, I think of any fiction writer, short stories for sure, too, as well. You know, it's a risky business because you really are, I think, when you're trying to write as freely and deeply into your psyche as I try to and I try to encourage my students to, the stakes are high because that's where you are. And, and um, I don't know, I, I, I stand by this book. I'm, I'm glad it's coming out, but uh, man, I just feel I wounded myself writing it. <laughs> I don't so, know if I should say that on a book tour. Well, you're not, uh, you're not, not really on the book tour yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we just have a couple of minutes left. Mm -hmm. This may be my last question. Maybe there's time for two. Um, are you working on anything now that that one's behind you? Do you got something else well, going? Well, it's interesting you ask. Just this morning, um, you know, I, I read poetry every day, and, and I listen to good music, and I spend a lot of time in stillness and solitude. One reason why I'll never have an iPhone. It just robs us of solitude and stillness and quiet. Um, no, I'm in that horrible netherworld. It's not so horrible where, um, you know, forgive the metaphor, women out there who've had babies, but I think that when, a, when, a, when you're a writer writing a story, you're pregnant with that story the way a, a real woman's pregnant with a real baby and a real womb, and, and those cells are multiplying and dividing in a dark place, and your job is to get nutrients to it every day, whether you feel like it or not, you know, with a disciplined writing schedule. So, but I've given birth to this new baby, right? And uh, I, I'm dying to get pregnant again. I just haven't met the right guy. <laughs> As in, story idea. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I keep, I keep a, a notebook of ideas that I write down over the years. And I've gone through it, nothing's speaking to me. But I've learned not to. Michael Ondaatje, after The English Patient came out, he was a huge international success. And some journalists said, what are you working on now, Mr. Ondaatje? He says, nothing. He said, I'm not a factory. He said, I spent a year after that book just doing collages, wrote a few poems, made a documentary. And um, I feel something's coming, but it hasn't come yet. So I'm just reading and waiting. It's kind of agonizing. Well, um, I'm glad that you're not a factory. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real, a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Paul. I've enjoyed it, too. I've been speaking with Andre Debus the third. His forthcoming novel, Gone So Long, will be published in October 2018. Debus gave a reading at the U of O on May 10th, 2018, as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Thank you.